This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. Now EMCs are often full, but there are still empty beds. It's all about infrastructure. It's about what you measure and how to translate that to clinical operations. There's also the need to optimize system service distribution throughout. Thinking about what goes where between what hospitals within that academic health system are important. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Jamie Zage. And today we're going to focus on academic medical centers and in particular, how they manage the business and how it's a really unique challenge for academic medical centers. The addition of medical schools, of faculty groups, how they need to manage funds flow between that, and the focus on the most challenging patients who really need tertiary and quaternary care level services requires us to look differently at the business. We at SG2, in partnership with Vizient and the clinical database, have developed some unique ways to look at the Academic Medical Center business analytics. I'm joined today by Justin Cassidy and Mike Humphrey, and we are going to explore these challenges and share SG2's approach to these analytics that can help AMCs manage patient volumes across their health systems and the system of care. Mike, not everyone who listens to our podcast comes from an ANC, reviews some of the challenges that we're talking about and the emphasis and why it's so important to think a little bit differently. Certainly, Jamie. Many of us, regardless of whether we work for an academic medical system or whether we work in a community health system or some other part of the healthcare ecosystem, certainly should appreciate the societal value, the clinical value, the innovation aspects that academic health systems help promote and live every day. While we understand that on the obvious side, what we don't often have the opportunity is to understand really the delicate ecosystem that is required to fund these efforts. Most folks may have heard the term tripartite mission. And we think of that as the clinical enterprise. We think of that as the research arm, as well as the School of Medicine, which really trains our workforce. For all of those to function and to deliver on that societal value, there's a great degree of interdependency and is a really delicate balance. If you particularly think about some of the financial challenges that hospitals are experiencing today, how delicate and how precarious that balance is. So for example, Schools of medicine are highly dependent. In fact, 60% of the dollars that they use to accomplish their mission come from a clinical activity, be that the clinical activity of the hospital or hospitals or the clinical activity of the faculty. And that reliance has increased from 40% to 60% most recently. Anything that challenges the margins of those clinical operations has a direct impact on the School of Medicine to fulfill their mission. Similarly, on the research side, the amount of federally funded dollars that go into research has increasingly shrunk. And not only is it the funding for the actual research, but competition for the researchers themselves have increased. These private research opportunities offer sometimes a much more financially attractive opportunity for some of these researchers. The academic ecosystem is very delicate. And so anything that sort of pulls on the string of one, like a spider web, has a direct impact on the other. That's an interesting analogy there, that spider web piece. Justin, I know we've had some different ways to look at, especially for the inpatient business, the complex patient populations. Can you tell us a little bit about how using an analytic framework, we help academic medical centers look at the different key patient populations to support some of that higher margin work that Mike was just describing? Sure thing, Jamie. In an year where we're experiencing extrinsic economic 
pressures here, kind of on the longstanding capacity constraints experienced by AMCs for years, we would pull our AMC members and ask, are you at capacity? What's your average daily census? And everyone says, we are absolutely full. When that happens, of course, amidst COVID, we started having You're full with surges of different types of patient activity. That restricts the opportunity to generate revenue and best serve our patient populations with surgical procedural activity, scheduled procedures, and the like. That has shifted in importance in this year because now AMCs are often full, but there are still empty beds because of staffing constraints. On that front, it's all about infrastructure. It's about what you measure and how to translate that to clinical operations. As academic medical centers have turned into academic health systems, there's also the need to optimize system service distribution throughout. And so thinking about what goes where between what hospitals within that academic health system are important. To all this, we've developed a framework, an inpatient clinical portfolio that we like to call it. It essentially bins patient DRGs into different buckets. You can think about it as a spectrum from very high CMI on one end and very low CMI on the other end. The high CMI, we segment into different bins. SG2 for years has created a tertiary DRG list. And what we leverage here heavily is data from our busy and data partners. We look at what DRGs are performed at much higher percentage at academic medical centers versus community hospitals, be it within that academic system or other health systems. Those DRGs that have a very high percentage at AMCs, we define as tertiary. This year, we actually started to carve out a smaller subset of quaternary DRGs. This is looking at within academic health systems, those that are performed primarily at that primary academic medical center within system. We also, every year as we generate this SG2 tertiary DRG list, for the past, many DRGs have dropped off that list. In 2021 to 2022, as we updated, this year, it's a major story. 39 individual DRGs dropped off that SG2 tertiary care list. And this reflects the increasing democratization of care into the community. From an AMC perspective, it might be that the competitive landscape is heightened and community health systems are capturing a greater share of those tertiary discharges, which our SG2 forecast and historical data has shown that they are growing very strongly with rising patient acuity, the aging population, and increased complexity and comorbidity. There's organic growth of those tertiary procedural opportunities for health systems, but those capacity constraints limit the opportunity to organically capture. With all that in mind, thinking about that left-hand side opportunity, these procedural shifts, it's balanced by the other stuff that a hospital does. In the past, we've called this the messy middle. It's more medically oriented DRGs that might be preventable admissions. It might be that these are patients that are best served with care at home initiatives in terms of strategic prioritization for where to start those programs. It might be an opportunity to decant crowded facilities. We also think that there's a tie-in here with your health equity and community health mission, ambition, and strategic plans in order to better serve patients preemptively to prevent that inpatient admission in the first place to decant crowded EDs and the like, and appropriately triage patients to the appropriate facility from the onset, rather than experiencing that opportunity cost to best serve all of our communities. 
Justin, one of the points you brought out around the shifting tertiary, we had a bit of a reality check when we looked at our own Chicago market. We're very fortunate to have five very amazing academic medical centers in our market. But when we looked at what was happening with those, the democratization of certain levels of tertiary care, we actually saw that the larger share of that, the market leader, was an integrated delivery system here in Chicago. As capacity impacts access and as other organizations continue to build out clinical skills, be they the professionals or the technologies to complement that, there could be some interesting shifts. And as we think about sort of that delicate balance, as those shift, often it's margin related to it, that further compresses the challenges that academic health systems face. That's absolutely right, Mike. And we've encouraged and our SG2 colleagues have pulled data for our SG2 members to be able to map market share of that tertiary opportunity. It's often surprising in the results and many large IDNs now capturing an increasing share of that tertiary procedural opportunity. What are you seeing as responses to some of that shift in the marketplace? What can other academic medical centers take and learn from others in terms of how they leverage the data to respond to that? More than anything, you can tie these portfolios. They give a great picture of the present and or recent past in terms of market share, but apply the S2 forecast to each of these bins, see where things are going. And when we've done that with quaternary and tertiary, those DRG buckets, we see just incredible growth. Quaternary care inpatient is growing 22% over the next five years. Tertiary DRGs growing 18%. This is very strong growth. So if your EMC, you're experiencing modest growth, 3 to 5%, it may simply be that your facilities are not able to accommodate those patients. This also has quality considerations. As we think about patients experiencing care at other locations where perhaps there's a volume to quality correlation, say lower centers that may do lower volume of procedures may have different quality outcomes that patients could experience superior outcomes if they were to go to an AMC if it had capacity. So strategically, this is really important. From a bed needs planning perspective, our SG2 members have also applied our length of stay and average length of stay forecast to these opportunities. Here we see a really exciting opportunity is the overall length of stay is increasing because of the overall discharges, but the average length of stay is decreasing for many of these scheduled tertiary and quaternary care procedures just because patients can experience more wraparound care services like perioperative surgical home types of models. And Jamie, really curious to your perspective here, the idea of completion at home or surgical recovery at home types of models. Absolutely. There's a hospital at home component to this too, whether it's the full stay or part of the stay that can help with some of that capacity piece. We have also developed a way to look at those hospital at home volumes in different tiers, layer them on top of these CMI buckets that Justin has identified, but looking at both medical and surgical and the easier to deliver in the home type of DRGs versus the ones that are a little bit more challenging. Maybe those patients need to be stabilized in the hospital first, or you actually need to get a confirmed diagnosis so you know what the treatment plan will be for the patient. Those are going to be what we call split stays. It's really like transferring a bed, but that opens up in your acute care facility more days that you can bring more patients in, whether it's the surgical or some of those more challenging medical patients to be able to split that stay is another thing that we're seeing, at least on the bed days demand. It doesn't necessarily have a huge impact on length of stay, although certainly hospital at home has shown to reduce the overall length of stay as well. But that's independent of just actually doing some of that hospital stay in the patient's home bed or what we call a virtual hospital unit. 
it's really exciting actually to see. And, and it's funny too, as we're looking at those quaternary care DRGs, that those that are being added to the list over years, and we can see that quadripartite mission, thinking about research, incorporating new therapies, new innovations, there's DRGs that are being added to the quaternary and tertiary care list that AMCs are leading the vanguard in. So think about CAR-T therapies, cell and gene-based therapies. Many AMCs just lead the vanguard here, and Mass General Brigham is a great example. UC Davis, though, really exemplifies some of these care-at-home shift potentials, even for these emerging DRGs for medical conditions, not even surgical, but thinking about bone marrow transplant and or those that would be mediated for cell and gene-based therapies. Patients often have the need for an inpatient stay during the procedure itself, but then traditionally have recovered in hospital, but perhaps much more comfortable to recover at home. And the Visiting Connections Summit in Vegas a few months ago, we heard a great poster session from UC Davis where they were creating a system for recovery for bone marrow transplant patients at home. And, and so really exciting there, as you can say, decant a whole month of a potential inpatient admission, you can expand the scale and scope of your program to accommodate more patients. Jamie, quick question. What's the sort of upper limit, do you think, of care at home shift? overall in the inpatient portfolio. When we're talking about hospital at home, because certainly there are other care at home levels of care, but when we think about hospital at home, we've looked at it in a couple of different ways from those that we deem clinically appropriate. And we've created an algorithm that looks at ICU utilization, patient acuity, looking at secondary diagnoses, and some of the other common exclusions that we see being leveraged by the leaders in this space, um, like Mayo and Mount Sinai and Presbyterian, Mass General. Those exclusions lead us to that clinically appropriate patient population. And some of those are tertiary DRGs, just to make note of that. We look at about 30% of the volume could be clinically appropriate. But then you've got a layer on top of that. How far is the patient from the hospital? Can we get to them within 30 minutes if there's something going on? So there's that criteria. There's other considerations like payer right now is another big one. There's considerations around patient choice. Somewhere between 70 and 80% of patients who are presented with the option to use hospital at home will select it and will say that they'd select it again. That is even higher. So those who've had it tend to almost ask for it the next time that they're in the hospital. So that is another factor that comes into play. And then there's the hours of operation as well that come into thinking about how much of the patient population might shift. These are not programs currently that are admitting 24-7. And some of that isn't even even about logistics or operations from the hospital side, but it's also patient preference. We've heard from some of our members that patients really don't want somebody coming into their home at 11 o'clock at night to set up a hospital at home program. We're going to see some of that hours of operation component slip that back down. So that 30% pretty quickly starts to move to somewhere around 10% of the patient population who's probably truly going to be sort of that cap, at least in the not too distant future. So in that seven to 10 year range, we're probably looking at about 10% of the volume that we might see. So for some organizations, some health systems, that essentially a whole nother hospital for them if they look across their systems and creating a virtual hospital. And that's how we get to scale in this space. But for organizations that we've been working with, that's still well beyond where they are today. Even some of those higher volume organizations, they're nowhere near even 5% of their total volumes shifting to hospital homes. So there's a lot of runway here and there are all kinds of capacity constraints and workforce issues that come into play too to think about what individual organizations can do. 
I'm curious too, on the inpatient front, what we build matters in terms of capacity. And I know we've looked at bed number. Any comments on bed change over time from an AMC versus community hospital perspective? Yeah, Justin, I think what we've seen historically is a much more rapid addition of critical care beds to academic medical centers. Quite surprisingly, we've spoken about that we're seeing many IDNs start to take on those shifting tertiary volumes. But if you look back at their ICU additions over time, it's been relatively flat. Perhaps they're being challenged by the ability to get workforce to support them. But what that results in is an increasing more costly, more advanced type of patient for the AMCs. The CMI is as measured by that. We do see quite a few AMCs adding beds, quite significant investments in terms of advancing and being able to manage that capacity. It would sort of all bring it back to the fact to their overall mission and that delicate balance. We've seen over the last couple of months what has been the average margin for an academic medical center decline from 5% to almost zero or perhaps worse. And so in light of all these investments in capital and technology. We've got that challenge above us. And take us back to that financing mechanism of funds flow that Jamie mentioned. We've seen over the last 10 years that we've done the Vizient funds flow study, we've seen the percentage of net patient revenue contributed to that funds flow from clinical operations just continually start to eke up. And it's around 11.5% right now. As we think about measuring the metrics that are important to clinical care delivery and continuing to fund that innovation, we have some real challenges in front of us. But I am encouraged by the innovation that we see in areas like care at home, create that capacity rather than adding beds. We've got a promising potential future there. Hopefully the reimbursement and the advances will continue in those areas. You bring up a good way to segue into another part of the analytic metrics and the analytics to manage the business, Mike, is that ambulatory space. So not just in the home, but the broader look at ambulatory. And Justin, thinking about your clinical portfolio work that you've created for the inpatient, you've also created the first version of this for ambulatory as well. Do you want to describe what that looks like for our audience? Absolutely, Jamie. This is one that SG2 members have been asking us to try to tackle for several years. The idea of, hey, you keep talking about this inpatient outpatient shift. Well, what's ambulatory tertiary? What's sort of the purview of an academic medical center on the outpatient side? To start to kick that off, what we did is looked at our ambulatory market strategist tool, which looks at outpatient claims data, and you can break it out by provider type. And so in in some states, we broke out all of the academic providers, the affiliated medical groups and the like. This is a challenge to do, but once we did it, the results were really spectacular because you can see some care families or disease-based groupings that are extremely overrepresented at AMCs compared to community health system partners. Think about transplant aftercare, for instance. That's one of the heavy hitters here. Many cancer therapies fall into this so-called academic or ambulatory tertiary bucket. All told, about 6% of all outpatient activity, this encompasses literally everything that we can measure, falls into what we would call more academically inclined care families on this outpatient portfolio in that ambulatory tertiary space. We're looking to expand this analysis to procedures or even to individual care groups in a more refined way in the coming year. Stay tuned to that. This is a challenge, but nonetheless really intriguing. Now, that 6% of academic or ambulatory tertiary opportunity is balanced by 6% of preventative medicine, or think about annual wellness visits, gynecological wellness screenings, and the like. 
the outpatient clinical portfolio has that preemptive care on the one side, ambulatory tertiary on the other. In the middle, there's a lot of activity. This strategically is important for hospitals to consider in light of external disruptors that are starting to hit many markets and test ponds, um, different individual niche activities with digital platforms or perhaps big tech companies. We see retail clinics building a new presence, pharmacists in some cases, seeing and billing for patient encounters in some states if scope of practice allows. There's a lot of changes here. On that end, we've continued to separate that clinical portfolio into three additional bins, one of them being on the more high acuity side, non-reversible conditions. This is chronic care that can't be ignored anymore. Think ESRD and dialysis. Patients cannot ignore these conditions. Also, cancer care being lumped in there. That's about 19, 20% of the outpatient portfolio. These are patients that have a high degree of recurring care need, are much closer proximal to procedural activity. Those recurring care visits, we think, are particularly well suited to AMC centered expertise, and that you're not just seeing the patient new every time, you're really kind of digging deep into their condition. The other types of care that we see on the outpatient portfolio are either more recurring visits, similar to chronic care, more on the low acuity side of chronic care, if you will, think chronic kidney disease, for instance, before ESRD. That recurring care visit is about 22%. And then we have a large percentage of the outpatient clinical portfolio that's more transactional care needs. And that's about 47% overall. Here, we determine the recurring or non-chronic care recurring visits. We distinguish them from transactional by looking at the percent of new E&M patient visits versus established E&M patient visits. And calculate a rough threshold here. Those that have a high degree of new patient visits, we have defined as transactional. It's not perfect, but this is a great way to get a grip on what those external disruptors are attacking. Virtuous medical groups like MD Live and so on are often thinking about patient encounters that don't require a longitudinal interaction or relationship in place. This fits the attention span of Gen Z and millennials as we think about having a lot of digital experience, that sort of on-demand care. It's, it's tough to replicate from an access point of view at EMCs. If you can see a virtual dermatologist and literally just with a click of the mouse uh, within five minutes, as opposed to scheduling an appointment that might be nine months out at an EMC. And so thinking intentionally about your strategic ambitions, is this something that you want to grow or perhaps see or in some cases, have a joint venture, have more advanced services downstream correlated with those if there is a referral needed from a transactional care visit for a patient that may not be best served with the transactional care model. We're very excited about this outpatient portfolio. Right. Mike, now that we've rolled this out, how are AMC clients reacting to, responding to, embracing, leveraging these new analytics? Having information, data specifically that can be localized and comparative to other academic medical centers and markets is just essential. And to understand the relative shifts, the relative importance and contributions that each of these patient segments make, both on the inpatient and outpatient side, it's critical. Having that information, using it as a platform to engage clinicians, to tackle some of the tougher issues of capacity and service distribution, it's vital. It gives folks insight that perhaps has been missing, and particularly on the ambulatory side, not particularly an area where academic medical centers have been great. Perhaps some of the community hospitals have been better at it. So it's a window into an area of increasing volume. It's an increasingly competitive area on the ambulatory side from various fronts, from disruptors. And I go back to having the information to guide your insights and provide better competence. That seems to be the things that they're reacting to very positively. 
Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Justin. Our evolving analytics hopefully are an asset to our academic medical centers as well as our community hospitals. Appreciate your time sharing with us, Justin, all of the work that you've put into the new look of the portfolios and the addition of the ambulatory and Mike, and of course, your insights into the academic medical centers and the metrics that matter for them. Appreciate our listeners today. Thank you for joining us. And we'll look forward to talking with you again on our next SG2 Perspectives. Thanks so much for listening to SG2 Perspectives. As always, I really value your feedback, input, comments, or ideas for episodes, and you can reach us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Additionally, I recommend that you check out some of the other Visient podcasts, which cover a range of clinical and operational areas. Those can all be found at visientinc.com backslash podcasts. Mm-hmm.